welcome the faith of our fathers. Today, we feature Vance Havner. In Vance Havner's own words, he says, Today, after 27 years on the road, 52 years in the ministry, and 20 books, I can only marvel at the way God has gone before me in this journey from Jugtown. In Genesis 24:56, Abraham's servant, when he found the wife for Isaac, was invited to linger 10 days. But he said, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way. Habner states, I am resolved to make that reply when any subtle suggestion arises to take it easy and to relax on my heavenly errand. When God has prospered man's way, he had better be on his way. Today's message is the glory of God. that we have heard so much that we assume that we're familiar with what they mean. Uh, we think because we know the term, we know the truth, and we rarely examine the coinage of this terminology to see whose image and superscription may be upon it. It has been said there are some truths that are regarded as so true that they lose the power of truth and lie bedridden in the dormitory of the soul. I think that's a terrific statement. I think we've heard some things so much and so long and so often that we think we know what they mean. Now, one of these is the glory of God. You've heard that all your days, and yet if I went through the crowd with pad and pencil and you put down what does the glory of God mean to you this morning, we'd have some interesting reading when it got back. Because uh, we assume that we are familiar with uh, all the implications of this term. We know, of course, that the glory of God was manifested in creation. Psalm 19:1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. All one has to do to know that is to stand on a starry night and look up. I pity anybody who can watch a sunset and not see the hand of the master artist painting a masterpiece on the canvas of the western sky. I've mentioned Theodore Roosevelt here already. I went up to his home at Sagamore Hill, which is now a national shrine, along with my friend from Hackensack, First Baptist some years ago. We took the day off, and on that spacious lawn, I remember reading that uh, the colonel brought out a friend of his one night, a very important visitor, and they stood and looked up a while. And then Theodore Roosevelt said, well, I think we're down to our right size. Let's go back in the house. That's a pretty good thing to do once in a while. We had a minor poet in North Carolina who wrote some major lines, however, when he watched the sunset and said, hills wrapped in gray standing along the west, clouds dimly lighted gathering slowly, the star of peace at watch above the crest, oh, holy, holy, holy. Oh, Lord, we know so little what is best. Wingless, we move so lowly, but in thy calm all knowledge let us rest. Oh, holy, holy, holy. That man saw more in the sunset than the sun going down. 
But of course, the light of nature is not enough. It doesn't provide a remedy for sin. Knowing God as creator is not knowing God as father. You can admire a work of art and not know the artist. You can see the art of God and not know the heart of God. One of my favorite nature writers, and I am a sort of a, I don't like that term bird watcher. I think it's terrible, but uh, you know, they crack so many awful jokes about us bird watchers. But uh, I have uh, studied the Eastern songbirds for a long time, and one of my favorite writers is a New Yorker, by the way, John Burroughs, who lived in the Catskills, and some years ago I rode along and saw the sign that out here in the bushes a ways is the cabin, slab sides, where he wrote so many of these wonderful things. As long as he was writing about the bees and the birds and the brooks and the blossoms and the butterflies, he was in his element, but he didn't know the Lord. Imagine that. Knowing the garden and not knowing the gardener. And you must look beyond nature for a full revelation of the glory of God. So we come to 1 Corinthians eleven seven. Man is the image and glory of God. Uh, man was the highest expression of the glory of God in all creation. I think we forget sometimes what a wonderful person Adam must have been in his innocence and before he fell. But he fell. And the image is marred and he's only a broken wreck of his original glory. And that brings us, of course, to Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Man has lost that glory, and no matter what you do with the natural man, he can neither receive it nor can he reveal it. He may reform, he may be educated, he may have culture and ideals and morality and join the church, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are moronic. That's really what the Greek would say. It's moronic to him because uh, they're spiritually discerned, so he can't know them. We have an awful lot of church members who just belong to the old Adam Improvement Society. And they go in for art and literature and refinement and altruism and religion, but no matter what you do with the natural man, put him in a dress suit, put him in a limousine, put him in who's who, put him in what's what, I don't care whether he got his diamonds at uh, Woolworths or Tiffany's. Didn't make any difference. He's still in his sin and short of the glory of God. And all his pulling on his moral bootstraps will not elevate him one inch higher. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And always will be. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I'm so glad that Jesus said, you must be born again to Nicodemus and not to Barabbas. Of course, Barabbas needed to be born again, but Nicodemus didn't think he did. And uh, when Jesus said to this uh, religious leader, you must be born again, I think Nicodemus must have said to himself, he doesn't know who I am. Somebody ought to bring him up on my pedigree. <laughs> but that didn't change things at all. You might as well try to play music for a deaf man or to... Describe a sunset to a blind man or talk nuclear physics to a wooden Indian in front of a cigar store. <laughs> as to talk about the things of God to a man never has been born again. And no use going into the deeper Christian life. He didn't know anything about any kind of a Christian life. And it's pearls uh, thrown to swine until he gets his eyes open. He doesn't need light anyway. He needs sight. There's plenty of light. We never had more light than today. We have amazing light, but the need is sight. 
Then we read that this glory of God is perfectly revealed in Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Man was made in the image of God. Christ is the express image of God. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. At Cana he manifested forth his glory all his life. He manifested that glory by his entrance into this world and by his passage through this world and by his exit from this world manifested the glory of God. Adam lost his glory. Christ is crowned with glory. He's bringing many sons to glory. But how do we get hold of it or how does it get hold of us? Well, that brings us to the key in John eleven forty. Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Jesus is down there at Bethany, you know. Lazarus was sick, and then Lazarus died. And when my Lord got there, Martha and Mary were, well, some think out of sorts, some think not. They were just simply saying, well, this wouldn't have happened if you had come. But uh, I read that Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary, so he waited two days. Now, isn't that strange? Wouldn't you have thought he'd go down there post-haste because he loved them so, but instead he waited two days? Have you ever prayed and the Lord took his own good time about it and you sort of got out of sorts about the thing? But if he'd gone down there, he would have healed Lazarus, but by waiting two days, he raised him from the dead. God always has something bigger and better when he takes his time, so don't get impatient. If, if thou hadst been here, and Jesus said in effect, you're off on the wrong if, if thou canst believe. There's only one if with God, if you can believe. Now, don't get iffy. Don't get iffy with the Lord. That man with the demonized son halfway down the Mount of Transfiguration, he tried everybody. We tried the disciples. They couldn't cast him out. If thou canst do anything, Jesus said, if thou canst believe. There never is any question about what God can do. The big question is whether you believe according to your faith, be it unto you. You see, you can be right about the facts and wrong in the conclusion. Now, Jesus said, roll that stone away from the sepulcher, and some of them said, well, now, uh, he's been dead four days, and I believe it would be sort of uh, embarrassing to roll a stone away, create an unpleasant situation. <laughs> but now, I've seen that in some churches when you try to have a revival try to get the stone rolled away. They're afraid they might create an unpleasant situation. They've already got an unpleasant situation. <laughs> well, it was true that he'd been dead four days. The facts were right. But there stood the resurrection and the life. And so the conclusion was all wrong. Why didn't they say, well, what's being dead four days? What difference does that make when we're in your presence? And the woman at Jacob's well, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, right, and wrong. Because there stood one to whom the depth of the well and the lack of a bucket didn't make a bit of difference in this world, or anything else that we if about so much. And then those disciples on the way back from Emmaus, there they were, sad, downcast, and Jesus walked with them, and they didn't know who he was. They said, well, haven't you heard what's been going on in Jerusalem? We trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides, 
This is the third day, right? And because it was the third day, they should have been going down the road singing hallelujah because that was the day he said, I'll be out. You might look for me around any bend of the road. It's already happened. Just be looking for me. But instead, there they went. Besides all this, it's the third day. They were right in the facts and wrong in the conclusion. Haven't you been just like that sometimes? You've got facts that ought to put a song in your heart and you go around sighing. You're right in your facts, but you forget that the God who's above all the facts is able to do the wonder. Now, Martha saw the resurrection. She was a good fundamentalist. Jesus said, thy brother shall rise. She said, oh, I know he will at the resurrection. Now, nothing wrong with that theology. But Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is, first of all, not a doctrine. It's somebody. I am the resurrection. Said I not unto thee if thou wouldest believe. Now the world today always wants to see first and then believe. They believed when they sowed. John 2.23. John 6.30. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe? Backwards. Uh, Come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Mark 15.32. Always wrong. You believe and then you see. It's only by faith. On January 6, 18 and 50, a young Englishman started to church in London. It was a snowy day, and he couldn't get to the church. He started to attend and uh, dropped into a little chapel, and uh, the regular preacher wasn't there, and the substitute got up and talked for a few minutes, and so this Englishman, under conviction of sin, and said, Young man, you're in trouble. Look to Jesus. Look. And Spurgeon said, I could have looked uh, my eyes away. There's life in a look at the crucified one, for as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Alexander White is one of my favorite writers, the great old Scotsman, W-H-Y-T-E. Some years ago I read that some depressed and distressed poor soul wrote to him and said, I just... I don't have assurance. I've I've done all it says to do, and I've prayed, and I've repented, and I've done everything, but I can't feel saved. I just don't feel saved. I don't have any assurance. we got a lot of folks like that today, going to heaven and having a mighty poor time going. And the devil's having a picnic. He enjoys saints like that. And dear Dr. White wrote back and said, My dear lady, out there in the wilderness, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites just row on row. I mean, I imagine that the fellow on the back row could, could hardly make out that snake on a pole. A long way to that snake from where he stood. But he said, God did not say see. He just said look. Now you think that went over a little bit. God doesn't ask you to understand all about the plan of salvation. Too much for us, but you can look. And he said, and I like this, throw yourself in the general direction of Jesus Christ. Now that's just a little strange way to put it, but I believe if you do that, he's never turned anybody down yet that even threw himself in the general direction. Him that cometh unto me, him that even aims in my direction, I won't cast out. Behold the Lamb of God, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. You see, the purpose of everything is the glory of God. 
No matter which way you turn, one reason why we don't have revivals in many churches is because we don't know what we're singing. We've sung it all our days. Hallelujah, thine the glory, revive us again. You see, whoever wrote that had it straight. That's the purpose of revival. Not more church members, not just an emotional stir, not even the salvation of the lost itself, but the glory of God. John 7, 39, the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now that refers, of course, to Pentecost. But the business of the Holy Spirit is always to glorify Jesus Christ. As John 16, 13, 14 tells us, he speaks of another, he witnesses to another. F.B. Meyer said, when you see a movement that makes the Holy Spirit its figurehead, watch it. Because it's off base. Jesus Christ must always be central, and when he isn't, whoever or whatever is eccentric, if they make even the Holy Spirit the main point in the process, because his business is to glorify the Lord. Dr. Torrey said the primary purpose of prayer is that God may be glorified in the answer. Now that'll revolutionize your prayer. The chief purpose of prayer is not to get what you want or even what you need. The chief purpose of prayer is to glorify God. Then there's a gradual revelation of the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We see the glory of God when we believe, and then as we continue looking unto Jesus, we are changed, we are transfigured. We don't change ourselves. The becoming follows the beholding, and the likeness follows the looking. Once we were made in God's image, and now we're changed into Christ's image. You say, well, I don't see many people like that. Well, that's because they're not off looking unto Jesus. They're looking at circumstances. They're looking inside or backward or around. It's been said it's the look that saves, but it's the gaze that sanctifies. And the glory of God is the standard of our conduct. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. That's God's yardstick. Young people like to ask a lot of questions about what's wrong with this, what's wrong with that, what's wrong with dancing, what's wrong with rock, and so on. Well... Does it declare the beauty of Jesus? Does God get any glory out of it? When young folks ask me, why can't I dance and be a Christian? Why can't I see these movies and be a Christian? I say, now you're already off on the wrong foot to start with. Let's start over. What you're asking is, how worldly can I be and still be a Christian? Now, Level, level with me, isn't that it? How near the precipice can I walk without going over? Why aren't you asking how much like the Lord can I be and how little like the world? And as long as you get the shoe on the wrong foot like that, you're always going to be messed up. Ask this, does it weaken my testimony? Does it offend the weaker brother? Does it give the devil a chance? Does it cloud the prayer life? Or even is it a waste of time? Somebody said bridge playing is an assault on time with intent to kill. And that's a pretty good definition, I think. 
<laughs> Ask yourself these things. And the old definition about the collar, if it's doubtful, it's dirty. All those things help. What are we here for, anyhow? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? Uh, therefore, since you're bought with a price, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. I never preach on tobacco, for instance. I just live 25 miles from where camel cigarettes are made. And they raise it as well as make cigarettes, tobacco, tobacco. But I always tell my crowd, and I've said it all over the South, I haven't got a sermon on tobacco. I've got something better to preach about. But if you happen to have your tobacco around when you come to hear me, Please leave it on the steps, and I'll guarantee you know a hog or dog will get it till you go back out. <laughs> and I could speak for 30 minutes on the evils of tobacco, and it wouldn't faze them. But I know a doctor's wife who was an anesthetist at Johns Hopkins and a chain smoker who came to hear me and I could have lectured on tobacco, and she would have laughed at me. And that's all I said. And she got under conviction, not only quit smoking, but got saved. And the pastor wrote me he'd baptize her a few weeks later on. You just can't tell how God's going to do it, can you? So, the main point is, however, does it glorify God, this questionable thing? People say, well, I don't know what's the matter with me. God doesn't use me. I wish the Lord would use me. Listen, God's using every one of you right now all he can, but not all he could. Now, if you can bridge the gap between can and could, that's getting somewhere. He's using us to the full extent of our usability. If you ever get usable, God will wear you out. you say, Lord, you're about to kill me. I didn't know you were going to use me. This That's the point. I wish you'd go away from this place today and get alone somewhere and say, Lord, you are using me some and all you can. But I believe you could use me more and then find out what's the matter. And then God uses some very strange ways of getting glory to himself. When he headed for Bethany and Lazarus was sick and died... He said in John 11, 4, this sickness is not unto death, but that God may be glorified thereby. And yet Lazarus died. Now, how do you get that together? When my dear one was so ill, I was going through my daily light, and on May 4, 1973, that was the verse that jumped out of the page. This sickness is not unto death, but that God may be glorified. And I grabbed it like a drowning man grabbing a straw, and I told my pastor, I said, I'm, I'm counting on that verse. This sickness is not unto death. But she died. And then I found out that Oswald Chambers, when he was in his last illness, he grabbed that verse and claimed it, but he died. But Mrs. Chambers gathered up his writings and had them published 
My utmost for his highest and all the rest of it's gone around the world. Now, his illness was not to death. That is, that wasn't the main objective. Nor was it with Lazarus. Dying's incidental with God. That wasn't the main purpose, but that God might be glorified. And I found something that I had a little trouble locating there in my experience. Now, a lot of mysteries you don't understand about uh, such chapters in your life. And this little book, now I'm not, please understand, I'm not peddling, I don't refer to any other book I've ever written, and there are 30 more besides this one, but because I found out something that I hadn't discovered in 70 odd years, uh, the little book has done something no other ever has. I've never had such a response in all the days of my life. I'm still coming in Friday before I left to come up here. Some dear soul called me up and said, I, uh, I've just had a bereavement in my life and I read your book and I wanted to tell you what it's meant to me and then she didn't give me time to talk to her. She just hung up. No name, no nothing. And I'm getting a compensation that I've never had in all my life. Well, you see, uh, Sarah's... Uh, Sickness was unto death, but it was not unto death. That wasn't the main objective. If she hadn't died, I wouldn't written the book and had a, an extra testimony that I don't have. That's the meaning here. Now, maybe somebody here this morning said, Lord, I don't understand you. You didn't come in a hurry. And I've been singing all my life, just when I need him, Jesus is near. But you weren't. Why? Why? Well... For the glory of God, if you can see it and cooperate. For the glory of God. I've got such a blessing out of Psalm 84, 6, where it tells us about those who passing through the valley of Baca make it a well. There's a new song just out. I've never heard anybody sing it yet. I, it's not a very fancy thing. Leave a well in the valley. When you go through the valley of weeping, God wants you to dig some wells so that the next poor fellow comes along can get a drink of water out of that well of your experience. Don't go moaning and moping and grumbling at God all the way through it. Dig a well, dig a well, leave a well back there. Fanny Cosby could have said, Why? Why was I blinded by mistake as a baby? For all these 90-odd years, she could have fussed with God that a long time to fuss. But she didn't. She started digging wells. My soul, the wells that woman dug. To God be the glory, blessed assurance, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. All the way my Savior leads me, draw me nearer. Jesus, keep me near the cross. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Jesus is tenderly calling, Savior, more than life to me. When Jesus comes to reward his servants, rescue the perishing, someday the silver cord will break. Becoming intimate with God. I read in Hebrews 11 about that crowd that just marched right on over everything. Well, what shall I more say of these who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. My soul, what a bunch of overcomers they were. Wouldn't you like to march through like that and taking everything by storm? But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, in the middle of verse 35 of chapter 11, and others, uh-oh, 
What? What happened here? What went wrong? Others were tortured, had trial of mockings and scourgings, bonds and imprisonment, stoned, sown asunder, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented. My soul, Lord, why? Do, are you uh, fond of this bunch and leave this poor crowd to get through the best they can? Oh, no. God isn't moving folks around like checkers on a board. God knows what he's doing. But when it's all finished, it says that they too are included in the great roster of the heroes of faith. I don't know whether you belong to the others this morning. Which crowd are you in? Some folks can tell about some great victories, and I'm glad they can. I hear some of these preachers, they get excited sometimes. They just keep soaring higher and higher. And the story gets a little bigger every time they tell it. Sometimes, and I, but I'm glad, hallelujah, but they don't all have that kind of a story. And some folks leave this world who know God, but they leave this world under tragic circumstances. A dear um, pastor's widow wrote me only a few months ago. Her husband, one of the godliest men I've known, was getting ready to go to Brazil on a preaching mission. They gave him a bunch of shots. I don't know, something went wrong. He'd had spells of depression. They put him in the hospital and he hanged himself. And for her, it was bad enough that he died, but the circumstances, how could it be? How could he, of all people, go that way? Well, uh, their son was over at Gardner-Webb College, one of our colleges in North Carolina. I said, I'm talking about why. Come over, maybe it'll help you a little bit, help some folks. And she came that night, and I think it did help her. There isn't any easy answer to these things. I know, I told her, she knows that your brain can get out of fix like your liver and you can kill yourself. Yes, we all know that, but you still wonder. So they don't all march through like that first batch of pilgrims there in Hebrews 11. I don't know whether you belong to the first batch or the second batch, but you're going to make it. You're going to get there anyhow. And you know it's not going to last forever. You say, well, no, you telling me, I feel like it's been eternity. No, it hasn't. When you look back, why, it'll be very small in comparison. Oh, beloved, we're just here to glorify God. And all the way through this book, why, I read the days coming when everybody that ever has lived, everybody living, everybody yet to live, will have to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. And I read that when the new Jerusalem comes down, it will have the glory of God. And they don't even need a lighting system over there. For the glory of God did lighten it. My old father should have been a preacher. He had two brothers who were preachers, one a Methodist, one a Baptist. He stood high above his contemporaries in the rural community, was superintendent of the Sunday school and the church nearly all his life. He was the preacher's right-hand man in the horse and buggy days. They always stayed at our house. They only preached one sermon a month in those days at a little Corinth church. Just one sermon a month. Some of them were long enough to last a month, but that's all we had, one sermon a month. And they always stayed at my daddy's house, and he'd let me sit up of a winter night with them in front of the fire while he and the preacher talked, not about other people. They didn't gossip. They talked about the things of God. That preacher earned his board and keep because Dad pumped him for all the Bible information he could get every time he came. My father loved the Word of God. It was more than his necessary meat. 
And uh, he got hold of a book of Spurgeon sermons, and there was one in it on 1 Peter 5.10, who hath called us unto his eternal glory. And Father just got swept off his feet and halfway to glory himself reading that thing, and he was so impressed that he sat down and copied that whole sermon in longhand. I had the thing in print right in front of me. I don't know why, except maybe he thought I'd leave it to get it into my system a little better if I write it out myself. Because he lived for only one thing. He wanted to walk on higher ground and scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory. Right. He used to say, I'm going to preach one sermon before I die. And I'd find outlines he'd made. And when I started at 12 to preach the gospel, he went around with me because I was a small boy. And uh, what delight he took in it. But he said, I'm going to preach it. I'm going to preach a sermon before I die. He never did. Not that way. But I went back to the little old church for meetings, and one night I said, folks, get up and tell who led you to the Lord. It looked like a frame-up. I didn't realize what was going to happen. He got up and said, well, Vance, it was your father. He spoke to me in the little grocery store. He came back and led me to the front one night during the meeting. And they started popping up like that all over the place. And you know what I said under my breath many times since? He did preach his sermon, after all. Because that's the way you really preach. He took great delight when I'd start out. And then when I was old enough to go by myself and ride on the train, he'd meet me at the station. That old blue serge suit hadn't been pressed since the day he bought it. And that old Ford, I mean old Ford. And I'd come up to him, first question asked, how'd you get along? It's been a long time. One of these days I expect around the last curve into glory and I expect to see him meet me not in that old blue serge suit but in the robes of glory and wouldn't he a bit surprised the first thing he'd ask him, how'd you get along? <laughs> and I'm going to tell him, fine, and I owe a lot of it to you because you wanted a gleam of glory bright in your life down here and you got it. Never made any money, but he knew the Lord. Well, it's our business, beloved, just to glorify the Lord and please quit your... Ifing with the Lord. Lord, if, if, if. When a dear one goes, you are so prone to say, if I had only. I wrote a whole chapter in my book about that. Well, if I had done this, maybe she'd have lived. If I had done this, if I had done that. That's all water over the dam. No ifs. If thou wilt believe, thou shalt see the glory of God. All right, who's supposed to wind up the meeting here? <laughs> Let's stand and pray. Dear Lord, we do thank Thee that the glory of God, although uh, we lost it, that it's been manifested in Jesus and that as we believe we can see the glory. Now help these dear folks here this morning. Some of them maybe have some ifs and... They've been saying, don't know why the Lord didn't show up. Speak to our hearts and show us that nothing is unto death, as it were. There's something beyond in the purposes of God. Help us so to live that whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do to the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.